Let us pray together. Come, Holy Spirit, and be our guest, and may my words be your words, all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. From the first part of today's gospel, I'm going to reread it. You just heard it, but I'll do it again. You can't hear it too much. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. That last part I'm going to leave for another sermon. Jesus' answer to John is all about Jesus' deeds, things that Jesus had accomplished and was accomplishing in his earthly ministry. These should have been very readily apparent to John the baptizer. I don't know about you, but I have wondered from time to time what John was thinking when he asked through his own disciples whether Jesus was indeed the one who had been prophesied, or as John says, who is to come. If we look at other scripture, we see very clearly that John was convinced entirely that Jesus was indeed that one. For example, the first chapter of John's Gospel notes that the baptizer says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, where Jesus insisted on being baptized by John, we read, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, we know the first Gospel, puts it in just about the same way. And so, at least at the time of Jesus first appearing on the scene, even before his beginning his ministry, the message is clear. Jesus is indeed the one who was prophesied. And let's look later on where John the baptizer, this is John 3.28, in a most humble, very humble testimony says, I'm not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride, that is the church, belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. John says, that joy is mine, and it is now complete. And then most tellingly, he must become greater. I must become less. The old commentator, long dead now, Matthew Henry says, very comely metaphor, I think, the moon and stars disappear 
when the sun rises. All of this certainly sounds to me as if John is entirely convinced that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and exactly the one who was promised. And so again, why is John having this problem with whether or not Jesus is the Savior? Some suggest that John was struggling because, as we know, he was in prison when he came up with this question. He was under great duress and was questioning probably just about everything. Being in prison allows plenty of time to reflect on lots of things. I've not been there and pray that I will never be, but I can imagine how one might analyze repeatedly one's positions on all sorts of things. You have the time, what did I do wrong? What would I do again? And I think that kind of reflection must have been going with, on with John. Probably most importantly here, John felt that if Jesus was indeed the one that was prophesied, Jesus should have arranged for John's release post-haste and preferably in a demonstrable or explosive way. And that had not happened. In a word, John was disappointed in the one in whom he had placed such faith. For sure, John would have been familiar with and recall the words in Isaiah 61 where the prophet says that Christ would come to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners. Was not releasing prisoners then one of the ministries of the Messiah? In summary here, John the baptizer thought and perhaps knew that he was facing death and he wanted to be absolutely sure that the one upon whom we had pinned so much was worthy of that distinction. A favorite commentator of mine, William Barclay, I think I've mentioned it before, as one of my professors called that pesky Presbyterian, would say, <coughs> he, he would say that John was really not asking this question for himself, but for the sake of his own disciples. Most clearly, these folks must have been as disappointed as John himself. They'd followed this arguably very eccentric man through the desert. Close your eyes and think of John with the long, straggly, and I'm sure dirty hair, the coat of camel's hair, the belt, eating locusts and wild honey. It's quite an image. This was John the baptizer, and they had stuck with him through his travels in the desert and had been supportive of and indeed welcomed the baptizing and message of redemption and their reward for all this was their leader was stuck in jail. This does not exactly instill confidence. And so John suggested to his followers that they ask Jesus just what was up. John knew that answer, or at least anticipated it. It's all about the deeds. Note what I do, not just what I say. The poetry of Isaiah here is so compelling. In chapter 35, Isaiah says, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come with vengeance and divine retribution to save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Jesus seems to have been saying that he was doing everything that the prophet said he would do. I'm fulfilling the word of my Father in part now, and I will do the rest when the time is right. Or, 
we might say that all of this did not seem like the right answer to John. He expected, perhaps, a far more powerful, vengeful, and destructive leader who would wipe the repressing Romans right off the map. And what Jesus offered was a gentler response. Paradoxical answers to those who were persecuted. Turn the other cheek. Give until it hurts. Care more for others than yourself. To John, these just did not seem like any kind of an answer. John was going to have to seriously reprogram his thinking to be part of the way with a capital W. Well, whatever John's reasoning for questioning our Lord was, we may never know for sure. But, you say, what could all this possibly have to do with the third Sunday in Advent? To my mind, it has everything to do with it. Because here we are, here we are, getting our own thoughts and our prayers together in anticipation of two incredible events. One, the incarnation where Jesus, the man-God, voluntarily came to earth as a human baby, but with very divine intentions. And then secondly, the return of Jesus, the one who had lived here on earth, was put to death, and rose again from the dead, all to answer God's righteous indignation as he beheld man's continuing sin. And as we contemplate and prepare, we should be certain that we, all of us, believe Jesus is absolutely who he says he is. It's our job to prepare the way not only for the remembrance of the coming of Jesus into the world for the first time, what we call Christmas, but for his return in glory. And that return will come. So the baptizer's question as to whether Jesus is the one is, the one, is really a question for us. When we do conclude that Jesus is indeed the one, there are essential next steps. <clears throat> Isaiah said it best in the 40th chapter. <clears throat> in the desert, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness, wilderness, a highway for our God. Okay, folks. If we are not in a spiritual wilderness and an ethical desert today, then I'm out, I'm out to lunch. So this is our next step. And it's not a single step. No. It's a continuing series of steps. As Ricky Ricardo said to Lucy, you've got some splaining to do. I hope there are some here that remember Lucy. <laughs> I love Lucy. Yes, we have lots of explaining to do. Our job is to explain to those that don't know exactly what Jesus has done for us and, as importantly, what Jesus can do for them. As Barclay, my friend again, says, 
when someone argues with you, now listen carefully, about the supremacy of Jesus, suggests they give their life to him and see what he can do with it. Now there's a good thought. How are we to carry out this work? Well, it seems to me that once we've been convinced that Jesus is the one, we must be absolutely steadfast in our faith. Never, ever missing an opportunity in our own life spaces to speak up for Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let us never forget that through the cross of Christ we have been justified. We have received God's rubber stamp that we're okay. And remember, this is not by anything we have done. It is only by grace and it only once we receive this and are aware of God's love for us that we have no choice but to tell about that love to others as often as we can. Just refresh your memory from Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified how? Freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We've heard over the last several months walk across the room and many, many in this congregation have begun to do that and are doing it. But I say walk across the town and speak it out. And by that I mean any town in which you may live. Some of us have begun recently to walk across the town to the French Hill area. And as attested by the Archdeacon, these walks are clearly bearing fruit. The more one does this, the more one talks about one's faith and the love of Christ for all who come to him, the easier it becomes. If anyone had said to this guy just a few years ago that I would be, be becoming bold for Christ, I would have said, you're nuts. Not this boy. My conversion took place exactly six years ago yesterday. It was at that time that I realized that the Holy Scriptures were indeed the Word of God in the words of men and that I had better get my act together and start treating those words as such. I had better begin paying serious attention to them. If I can be bold and speak out, you can do it too. I mean, you know, a surgeon for 40 years, wearing many masks, um, unable to witness to my faith at all. And I'm a changed person, praise God. You can do it too. And as part of your sanctification, that's a big word, but we'll, we'll explain it someday, if I understand it, where you try to be more like Christ, you must do it. You must speak up. You can't help yourself. Works don't work. Works won't pay the rent. You do it not to gain anything, but as a response 
to what you have already gained. So let's all make the remainder of this Advent, and I hope the remainder of your lives, our lives, a time of bringing people to the saving love of Jesus Christ. Remember how Jesus said in Matthew 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let people know that. Let people know that this offers them the release that comes from knowing that our past, present, and even future sins are forgiven by that saving event of the crucifixion. And finally, be holy. Be holy yourselves. There's an Advent message from my Trinity School for Ministry Advent booklet, and this was written by the Most Reverend Hector Zavala, who is, as you pro some of you know, the primate of the province of the Southern Cone. Um, he was a student at Trinity when I was there getting his deem in, and he's just a wonderful guy. He's a Chilean, so he and I had a lot in common because my partner for 30 years was from Chile. He says in his message, which is very good, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And he goes on, by spreading the good news of Jesus, building the church, and serving our societies. By keeping in prayer, remembering that Jesus is coming and always giving him praise as we wait for him to return in triumphal glory for his people. Thank God for the work of Jesus Christ, and thank you, Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. In the name of the Most Holy Trinity, amen. amen. <clears throat>